Hey folks, John here from AS for Alcoholic again. Today's conversation is with Chris Marshall, founder of Sands Bar in Austin, Texas. Sands Bar is a bar that doesn't serve any alcohol. Crazy, right? It's a place where people can come and hang out and get all kinds of mixed drinks alcohol-free. Um, and we got to sit down and talk about his history with alcohol, his future, um, his present, and all of the things in between, and just how Sandsbar is filling this need that we find as alcoholics to fit in, to be a part of a group, to have a place to go. You know, we I think a lot of times we always feel like we're losing our social, um, our social scene when we quit drinking. And although there are certain places I can't go anymore, uh, I don't want to go anymore. Sandsbar is a place where you can go and congregate without the pressures of alcohol. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Chris Marshall. First, thank you for for doing this, Chris. I appreciate it. And um, I always like to start, I'm always curious about what people's first experience with alcohol is if it was something that they grew up with if it was something later in life you know not maybe not necessarily your first drunk but sometimes it's a family member and that kind of thing and how your relationship with alcohol has evolved and brought you to where you're at today well first of all thank you for, ha- for having me mm-hmm. on i'm so glad to be here uh <clears throat> that's a great first question honestly i think that it's easy to go to like the easy answer is your first drunk but alcohol was always in the background of my life uh when i was five years old i was picked up by my aunt uh at, at you know um i guess kindergarten and uh immediately uh noticed that a bottle had rolled from underneath her seat and my family doesn't drink uh they still don't drink um mm. for the most part and so this bottle at, at what, five, six years old, rolls out and and immediately catches my eye. I I know that something about the bottle is wrong or out of place. And uh, I take it upon myself to memorize what I, because I I probably can't read at this point or read well. Um, My daughter's six, so I can imagine she would do the same thing. She reads the words that she can remember. And I remember going home to my mom and saying, mom, my aunt picked me up today and there was a bottle of beer in her car. And my mom said, what? Like, that's not like my sister. I would, we would never, we don't drink. Like, Chris, are you sure? I said, mom, I'm sure I saw this beer in the car. And I was, I just, now I'm like recalling how I just, just how frantically I felt about this and how I had proof that it was beer. And I said, mom, I even remember the name of the beer. It said R O O T. And my mom laughed like you're laughing. And she's like, no, baby, root beer is not beer. That's an A and W. That's not, that's not the same thing. But for me to have that experience indicates that I already knew that beer was not good or beer wasn't that that story says a lot about my my pre-knowledge you know prior to ever consuming it myself i had some kind of understanding and relationship with alcohol and i i still i mean i don't know where that began for me uh but Mm -hmm. i i kind of started off life with that understanding that beer equals bad 
uh, beer is something that we don't do in this house. Alcohol is something that we don't do in this house. And um, I made a kind of pact with myself uh, at an early age that I was not going to drink, smoke, uh, do drugs, or have sex until I was 18 because I figured those were adult things. Mm-hmm. And adults, only adults did those things. Spoiler alert, all of that happened before I turned 18. <laughs> uh, but I had it in my mind at a very early age that alcohol was not something that I should have in my life. Um, right. So yeah, that's the, that's, the, that's the earliest kind of memory huh. and relationship I, I had with alcohol. And this was something that your parents or your, your family had, they, they discussed this, that, they, that this was, or at least it was discussed within the house, maybe not directly to you, that alcohol was a bad thing and we don't have that in the house. Yeah, I, I think that my uh, dad's uh, father uh, was a pretty heavy drinker and uh, may, may, may have been an alcoholic. Um, and I could see that being where I learned that from, that um, that, that was an undesirable trait. I could see mm-hmm. that being kind of the, the message um, early on. Uh, I mean, it was, it was before, like, say no to drugs. So it, was, it, it had to happen through me observing conversations situations and and just realizing that this is something that was not okay in my little world. Hmm. So so you make that pact with yourself and and this is at a very young age. How long before that pact gets broken or do you decide or is it a is it a conscious decision like I'm going to drink, I'm going to smoke, is it, you know, what brought you to that point? What, what age was that, that the pact was broken? So the pact was broken at 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a serious period of deliberation in my life. I mean, as much as a 16-year-old can deliberate and, and, and evaluate consequences in their life, um, I was... The story of my, my through line in all my, my life is that I was a, the outside looking in kid. I was always different. I always felt like I didn't belong um, before. So we'll, we'll kind of fill it in a little bit between five and 16. Okay. Um, when I was five, my father was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. Uh, my parents divorced. Um, and immediately I felt different than everyone else. I felt like I did not belong uh, in a school full of, uh, kids who had their, both of their parents. I just always just didn't, I never felt like I belonged. Uh, and then we moved from East Texas where I was born to Houston. My mom was a single parent and didn't feel like I belonged in any circle there in Houston. Uh, oftentimes I was, you know, one of a handful of kids of color. Um, sometimes the only kid of color in situations and, and that made me feel different. And so the choice to break the pact I made with myself was based on that, that need to be a part of and that need to belong. Um, I had fallen in with a group of guys and they were, I mean, it was great. It was, it was, it was uh, just a special group of guys that, you know, just your buddies that you grew up with. And uh, 
like we hung out at each other's houses, we played basketball together. And then that around 15, 16, they started to experiment with the alcohol. And I just didn't want to be left out. And so I clearly remember that very first time because that was a conscious decision to drink. Mm-hmm. So the first time I, I drank, um, and I think that this is, this is something that's very specific to people that have had struggles with alcohol. Um, I can't remember what it was like the first time I voted or uh, the first time I got behind the wheel of a car, but I know in great detail what happened. Uh, and so my first drink is a very clear memory. I was 16. Uh, I lived in Sugarland, Texas, which is just outside of Houston. And it was a hot July day, not unlike it is today here in Austin, Texas. Um, we, we had made friends with this lady who worked at Chili's and she, you know, was just, now that I think about it, kind of weird that this older woman would be hanging out with these teenage kids, but like, you know, she was cool. She was a cool, cool older, probably in her older meaning like mid twenties. Mm-hmm. And she like was nice and cool to us. And, and, uh, we convinced her to buy us beer one day. And so she mm. kept it in her trunk uh, of her car outside in the Texas heat. And when she gave it to us, it was burning our hands. It was so hot. It was so hot. But we walked out into this remote field, uh, like dead grass all around us, hot sun overhead. And we we open up this six, this 12 pack of uh, Shiner beer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember looking at the bottle and I just, I just was holding it in my hand and looking at it and thinking, this is a bad idea. I mean, like every sensor was saying, this is not good, Chris. Like from five years old, you've known that alcohol is not good. Now you're about to do this. But then I looked at all my other friends and they, they were already, you know, opening up their beers. And so I opened up mine and I had that first sip. And the first thought I had was, this is disgusting. The second thought I had was, this is awesome. And look how connected we are. Look how I am one of the boys now. Yeah. 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 I, I feel I had a very similar experience. Um, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't too far off from that. I think it was, you know, my friend's mom's, his parents didn't really drink, but they always had booze in the house. I don't know, for company or something. And, and so there was, I just have this memory of the Jack Daniels and and then filling it up with iced tea because we thought somehow that was going to be, but then you're <laughs> diluting the Jack Daniels. Like there was no thought process to this, right? It was just anyhow. So, but yeah, very similar thing where you're like, yeah, we're connected. This is great. And just that it's so vivid the memory and everything building up to it and everything that happened during it you know it's it's mm-hmm. it's amazing and you're right i don't remember the first time i drove a car or voted <laughs> but that alcohol is like pow like that it just yeah. it fires off in your brain and it i feel like it literally and you know rewires it from the very beginning right mm-hmm. absolutely so were you on your way, 16, ready to go, drinking every weekend. Was it then just a regular thing or did it take some so time? So that was the that? first time I drank. The okay. second time I drank, I decided to throw a party at my mom's house while she was gone, mixed tequila and chocolate milk, 
and mm. decide to wreck my mother's car and ended up in jail. The second time I, I ever drank in my life, that was my second, my, my second uh, experimentation with alcohol. Mm -hmm. So I wow. started off, I started off drinking uh, just problematically from the start. Wow. Like there was never a good, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. That just shows you uh, being 16 and like you're still a kid and chocolate milk is available, mm -hmm. right? Like you have chocolate milk in your house, but you're doing this very dangerous adult thing like drinking and mixing the two together was an awful idea, but it, it just, I just remember every time I drank, uh, right out of the gate, mm -hmm. I always had these huge problems and they always caused me social embarrassment. Mm. The very thing that I was trying to do was become socially acceptable. But then every single time I would fall over and I, I broke someone's like, someone had something, uh, from, from like, uh, Estonia, like something like really like rare and beautiful. I broke it. Like I, yeah. I, I would do things like I would just throw up on myself, show up to baseball games drunk, um, trying to, you know, I, I just was never good at it. I was never good at it. Um, yeah, you know, so and I, isn't that, isn't that funny that we always talk about, um, you know, I, I used to, you know, I, I would say this and be like, well, I used to be really good at drinking, you know, I was, I was a professional drinker, you know, and, and then I look back on it now and I'm going, I was never good at it. I had no. maybe had a high tolerance and there might've been that first like hour or two, maybe where I held it together, but there was never any proficiency. It was, <laughs> it was exactly what you said that. I love that, that, you know, here I am trying to be accepted and I continue to embarrass myself in front of the people that I'm hoping to be accepted by. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so true, man. It's so true. That's such a, yeah. that's, that's a great point. Um, and so this is something that continues, I, I assume, well into your 20s. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't technically graduate high school. Mm -hmm. um, I had to finish high school and summer school because I drank while I was at school in high school. Um, I was the editor of my newspaper and I was turning out like great work, but that was the only thing I was doing. I, w I wasn't doing anything else. Um, I, I think that just kind of underscores that I really um, just had my parties all mixed up. And uh, I liked the adulation that I got from writing and uh, I, I got praise for that and I was okay at it. And I focused on that rather than doing what I needed to do to get out of high school. So, uh, yeah, the, the pattern continues in, in college. I joined a fraternity. And um, for a lot of people, that would have been uh, just a regular partying experience. But for me, I, I was not in it for the partying. I mean, yes, I, I drank and loved the mm -hmm. parties. But for me, it was so much more about being a part of something yeah like that was the thing for me was that i was a part of this community this brotherhood air quotes mm -hmm. um i i was i was 
I didn't have to worry if I was going to get invited to parties because I was part of the, the people that threw parties like that. That to me was so much more important than it was to probably most of those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it mattered a great deal to me. Um, and so this, you, you found this, this connection, this fraternity, this, um, uh, this group of people, uh, that, that, you know, I, I assume that you connect with and, and feel good about, and it's not just the partying. Um, does, does that, does that help? Does that help with the drinking? Does the drinking slow down or do you feel like you, you're actually connected or is it still fueled by the alcohol? Yeah, I I think it it accelerated the rate at which I was drinking for sure. Yeah. Um because I was drinking for for two reasons now. I was drinking to be social. Um but then I was also still drinking to self-medicate that uh, that feeling of isolation and lonely, loneliness which at that point became anxiety. It became social anxiety. Um I was always a nervous, anxious kid, but once I started drinking in a fraternity, I had to not only drink during the party, I also found myself drinking after the party. And I was the, I was the, the pledge that would uh, hand out jello shots, you know, at, just before the, the party was about to kick off, drink with everyone while the party was wild and crazy. But then at, three o'clock in the morning, I'm walking around picking up empties or half, you know, empty beer, drinking those, drinking, um, you know, mixed drinks with cigarette butts in them. Like I, I was not, I was drinking for another reason. And it was obvious, like people in my fraternity were like, man, you sure do drink a lot. You know, Yeah, I do. Um, yes. Yeah. And people, people just said that, like, you are not, you're not okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, I, again, I'm, I'm hearing my own self about this thing where like everyone else goes to bed and I'm still going and I'm still going and looking for anything and everything that I can get my hands on and realizing not, not realizing, but that I'm just trying to feed my own addiction like it's no longer there's nobody to be social with right you're just wandering around by yourself after everyone's done continuing to and yes i've i i have a very vivid memory of swallowing a cigarette butt and it's <laughs> i remember the apartment i remember the town i remember it's like oh my goodness um and you were you going to college for for writing as well was that part of the the program or uh you know i wanted to go to school for journalism. I really mm-hmm. wanted to be a journalist. Um, but the program, I went to the University of Texas at San Antonio. Um, and that was not an option. So I just mm-hmm. picked communications, mm-hmm. but it did matter. I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't going to class. <laughs> I could have, I could have, uh, you know, made, uh, chosen, uh, you know, physics or something. It, it would matter. I wasn't going to school. I wasn't in school to get an education. I was in school to continue finding connection and to continue this downward spiral. Um, I knew 
from really the, the first time I sat in that jail cell at 16, I knew that alcohol was a problem for me. And I knew that going to college would extend my drinking career a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, w- it would help me to mask my drinking and to make it socially acceptable, except it, it didn't. It, it was still more than other people were drinking. It was still um, ending in the same kind of embarrassments and the same kind of humiliation, the same kind of um, harm to myself. That college was not going to fix, and nothing could fix what was inside of me. Right. Um, Words are further... Was there any more, you know, run-ins with the law or anything like that in, in that time? Yeah. So, I mean, of course, just a slew of like MIPs, minor in possession. Mm-hmm. Um, I got another DUI uh, just before I was going to turn 21. In the state of Texas, there's a DUI and a DWI. And a DWI, that's the big one. Um, but okay. as a minor, you can get a DUI. And I, I was fortunate enough to get that while I was still under 21. Uh, but same scenario, just, uh, wanted to be part of a party. I didn't even own a car. I was driving my friend's car, but I wanted to go to this party. And so I, I just drove across campus and apparently not very well. And, uh, I got pulled over and, uh, you know, same thing continued. So it, it was a pattern for me and and one again that i wasn't proud of i knew that this was not something that i should be doing and yet i found myself drinking over and over again so how long does this go on for i mean at this point you're saying you're 21 22 you graduate college you don't (laughs) no 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 okay no not that time no i okay i uh was barely lucky to escape San Antonio with my life. Um, I was 22 uh, when my mom just, uh, and she just, just, I don't even know the right word for it. I was trying, <laughs> I was going to say she stole me back, but she like literally just evacuated me. That's where she rescued, evacuated me from. Yeah. Rescued me from uh, my own uh, just, torment in san antonio i had dropped out of school i was drinking every day i was working at subway and i was paying for my liquor uh in bottles and sandwiches and so i would give the guy a foot-long sandwich and he'd give me a bottle of you know stolic or whatever the the cheap vodka wow. was um and that was my life and i had really went into more depression i really started to um, just, just spiral out. Uh, I started cutting myself, uh, just suicide attempts. I mean, it just, it got really, really dark. And so my mom rescue is the right word. She literally rescued me from that place that I was at in San Antonio. I moved back to Houston to be with her and went to my first rehab at 22. What was that like? Were you, were you ready? Were you kicking and screaming? Uh, I remember, you know, going to rehab the first time and thinking to myself, I don't belong here. You know, I'm 22 years old at the time. All these people have way 
more extensive drinking and drug use. It's not, this is not for me, guys. Like, I do need the detox because I can't get out of bed until I have a drink of alcohol. I am mm. already kind of having the trimmings early in the mornings. Um, I'm already uh, drinking mouthwash uh, and cologne uh, to, to stay drunk and stay intoxicated. Uh, but this is not for me. My drinking, right. as bad as all those things I just told you were, cologne and mouthwash, still not as bad as someone who uh, does coke or, or does meth. Like this is, I'm not that bad. So I went through detox and I signed myself out and I told the, uh, the counselor that this is a waste of my time and your time and I will not be back to rehab. Um, I promise you I will stay sober. And the guy's like, you're not going to stay sober. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to call you in 30 days. And I'm going to say, this is Chris. I'm still sober. And I'm going to hang up the phone. And 30 days later, this is Chris. I'm still sober. End of the call. Uh, 60 days. This is Chris. I'm still sober. And I just hung up the phone. 90 days. And a brown, and it was around that day ninety three. Um, that game got really old. You know, um, I was doing it just to prove to this person yeah. that I could stay sober, and I was miserable. I mean, I was. Gosh, I mean, I, as I'm describing, like, a, you know, car accidents and jail and all this other stuff. That 90-something days, maybe 97 days that I was just white-knuckling it was the most excruciating pain, uh, emotional pain, I've, I've ever felt. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was horrible because I wanted to drink so badly. I, I would just crave it. And more importantly, I craved being with other people. I craved going out to the bar. And part of my thinking was, I will never be able to have a drink at my wedding. I'll never be able to watch football with the boys. My fraternity brothers are all going to you know, Colorado and let's go to Mexico and party. And they're now adults uh, or out, at least out of college. And I can't do any of that because I can't drink anymore. Um, and so I made the decision. I, I wrote my mom a letter. I would kill to find this letter. Um, I need to ask her because she saved almost everything that I wrote. Um, but I wrote her a letter. I said, Mom, I've given it a lot of thought, and I'm going back to drinking. But I'm only going to drink beer. I'm not going to drink any liquor. Uh, and went downstairs, uh, went to the Texaco, and got a six-pack of beer. And that was a run that lasted a couple of weeks. But my drinking was already so bad that I, I just could not have gone on drinking anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I picked up right where I left mm -hmm. off. That whole no beer thing lasted about six hours. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. So, so you write the letter. Does she, do you ever... You don't, you don't wait for a response. You just write the letter and then go get the six pack. You're like, just letting your, I'm just letting you know what's going on, the decisions I'm making. I've thought about it. I mean, a, a lot of people don't give it that much thought. A lot of people don't put that much, you know, that, that notion of like, okay, I've just resigned myself to this is how it's going to be. 
Um, and how long does, does that last? Does it, are you, are you happy after you had, does, does your mood change or are you, do you ever have the, did you have that moment of like, okay, I'm back and it feels good or was it, I'm back and it feels terrible. Right. None of the, none of the things that I had hoped to accomplish or the things I was hoping to feel again mm -hmm. came back when I, when I took those, those first couple of drinks. Yeah. Um, I was hoping to feel grown up and feeling like, you know, these last couple of months of sobriety had been good for me. And um, I was going to 12 step meetings and I could go into those meetings and prove to these people that I didn't need this. And that's, that's what I had hoped. I had hoped that that was the reality for me. And the, and the truth was, is that as soon as I took that first drink again, it all went out the window. It all, all those hopes, all that went out the window because I, I could see into the future and I knew that this was going to be the same kind of pain that I was feeling in San Antonio, the same kind of pain I was feeling um, as a kid. Like this, like all of that is what got dredged up. None of the good stuff ever, ever happened for me. So uh, I, I drank for maybe two or three weeks. Um, had to go to the ER because I had alcohol poisoning. Um, the doctor told my mom, he is probably not going to make it. You need to start preparing to bury your son because he is going to drink himself to death. I was, I was born without an off switch um, in many respects, but when it, especially when it came to alcohol, there was just no off switch. Once I put it in my body, I would not stop until I was either incapacitated or in jail. Those are the only two ways that I ever stopped drinking. And um, yeah, doctor said that. My mom, I think she just got done. She got done before I got done because she had been enabling me in her own way for a very long time. And she almost loved me to death. She, she loved me so much that she tried to provide an apartment in San Antonio and send me money well, you know, while I wasn't able to like work a full-time job. Uh, she, she tried her best, but she decided that she was done. And so she told me, hey, you're gonna die. And I've accepted that, but you're not gonna die in this house. Uh, you have maybe a day, I don't know if it was even a day. You have, you have some time to find a place to live or you can go to rehab. Those are your two options. But I am changing the locks today, and she did. And you're out of here. And I chose rehab. And uh, it was the best choice I've made, you know, in my life it's up to that point. And was that, was that the final rehab? Yeah, that okay. was it. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I want to I say that I had gone before that. Yeah, I think there was maybe one kind of in and out thing. Mm -hmm. I, I just didn't want to stay. I wasn't going to ever stay anywhere. And that was the whole thing. Like, I just wasn't willing to stay. And uh, the last <laughs> rehab, I think there was one more in there. Um, or it was like, an, uh, maybe it was a detox in there. Mm -hmm. um, but the last one was so important because it was the first time anyone had ever told me that I was self-medicating. It was the first time anyone ever said, do you think it's possible that you are drinking because you are anxious and depressed 
and I knew those things to be true, but it, it was the first time anyone ever put words to it. And, and that was really important to me. Um, and, and also it was the first time I had ever been asked the question, do you feel a part of life? And it, and this guy, his name was also Chris. He used to ask me this question, do you feel a part of, and I'm like, a part of what? He's like a part of anything, a part of a community, a part of uh, society. Do you feel a part of? And he couldn't have known, but that was the central question of my whole life. My whole, my whole life had been, Chris, are you a part of anything? Are you part of a family? Are you part of a group of friends? Are you part of this classroom in school? Are you part of anything, part of this party? you do not belong Chris and those you, know, you don't belong here you're not like these people you are different um that question completely shaped the rest of my life honestly and I, I've told that guy that you know that was powerful wow that's that's great I mean I I think about there are so many things that are so similar in everything that you're saying I <laughs> I didn't go to I didn't go to rehab but everything up to that is, uh, anyhow, it's, yeah. And are you a part of something and feeling like on the outside and just in the way that you said it, do you feel a part of life? I don't think I've ever heard that vocalized before. And yeah. it's, it's so absolutely true that when I was drinking and in the darkest and in the darkest times, which were most of it, but I mean, if I drank for 21 years or something, probably the last seven were dark, you know, and um, I never felt a part of life. I always felt on the outside. And I think sometimes, and I don't know if you felt this way ever, but my alcoholism would trick me into thinking that that was some sort of um, source of pride, right? Like I'm on the outside, you know, I don't belong. I'm on the fringe of society because that's where, what, the rebels are that's where the the cool people are that's where the interesting people are and i wasn't cool or interesting or a rebel i was usually in my bed with the bottle of vodka underneath it at least that's how it ended you know mm. so i just love that idea of are you a part of life not your life or and also you know the other thing that struck me is is this idea of doing it for somebody else and why that doesn't work, at least not for very long, and also why it's miserable to do it for somebody else. You know, you talk about 97 days, just so you could call, it's out of spite. Being sober out of spite is, it's just not fun, <laughs> you know? It's not, and it's, it's such an unhealthy, like, <laughs> it's such an unhealthy thing when you really think about it. Uh, and I find that people of my ilk, uh, we do things like this, right? Like mm -hmm. on principle, we will do things. And alcohol is really good at affirming for you what you already believe. Yeah. Uh, it, so if you feel like a rebel or renegade or look, I don't need this. Pe I don't need these people. I don't need society, whatever. I'm going to be, uh, I had this great idea of being, you know, Kerouac and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just being like this. Uh, you know, writer who just looked at the world through this like lens of, of pain and, and angst and yeah, 
alcohol was just that friend that's like, yeah, buddy, like, I, yep, I hear you. Like, alcohol was never going to tell me, no, what you're doing or thinking is wrong. It, it only affirmed for, affirmed for me what I believed, um, which was highly problematic. Um, so, yeah, uh, that question changed my life. Wow. That group changed my life because in the rehab, they would have these Friday night meetings with the alumni group. And he was part of that alumni group. And that alumni group, once I graduated, became my new sober social circle. It was the place that I would go. Cause I remember now I'm like 23 at the time. I'm 23 at this point and I'm going to um, this Friday night meeting. And after the 12 step meeting, they go out to this Mexican restaurant and uh, the food is, trash but the 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 feeling that i would get um the way that i had to fumble through ordering my first order of nachos and how that was such a hard thing to do because i hadn't ordered food sober and how uh we would just hang around and the old timers would just you know talk about people you know in the past and you know give each other a hard time like man that became something I was looking forward to. And I remember very clearly, you know, I was maybe six months sober. That same guy, Chris, asked me, so do you feel a part of? And without hesitation, I just grinned and said, yes, I do. I do. And, and these people didn't look like me. I was probably the youngest person there. Um, they probably had more money than I did. They, they, they lived in a different part of Houston than I did, but that didn't matter. I, I felt for once, like I didn't have to be anyone else but myself. And I, and I loved that group of people. And so, yeah, I, I, I got the thing that I was looking for, was craving um, since I was a kid, I was craving that connection and I finally got it. Yeah, there's a, um I know there's been some studies and stuff that talk about how addiction and connection or addiction is the opposite of connection and mm -hmm. and it makes a lot of sense to me. I don't I don't understand all of the science of it, but there's definitely that that's what my alcoholism was was seeking out. It was doing it in the worst way possible, in the in the in the most wrong way possible, but seeking out some connection only to ruin it every single time. And it wasn't until I got sober and clear-headed enough that actual connection was available to me. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. love that, that you're like, well, this is, this food is trash, but you know, the nachos are terrible, but like, this is so great to be a part of. And it just feels that this comfort and, you know, what it feels like to be actually accepted by another human being for just existing. And you're like, oh shit, it does exist. And I can't have it. So I yeah. mean, I think that's that's awesome. Um, so so you you get sober. What you what um when was this? What's your what's your sober date? What's so my sober, sober date was February sixteenth, two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. Yeah. Wow. So you are you 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 are you are the the old timer now in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind that's, of yeah. Thirteen years. I mean, thirteen years is. That's pretty good. It's, it, you know what, it, when I say it out loud, it uh -huh. terrifies me that it's coming out of my mouth because 
uh i never thought i could stay sober i could i anything this long look right anything uh sober uh yeah uh it's it is i've been i've been around uh you know and i always i've become the kind of old timer that now says you know hey as long as you got up today you got more sobriety you know just like I'm, right. now i'm that i'm that guy um because You're it's true of, yeah you you've got all the cliches and all the the aphorisms and the sayings yeah. and yes yes um there's this great, it's funny, you know, when you talk about like those things there, have you ever seen the show flaked on, uh, on Netflix? No, it's Will Arnett plays a recovering alcoholic in 12 step program. And at one point they're at a meeting and something about like, yeah, that guy's got a drinking problem. Like, no, he's got a platitude problem. Cause the guy, <laughs> one, one of the characters is always like spouting off all the platitudes, but they're true right we we they're come true. to learn this they're they're yes. they're so absolutely true that that's why everybody repeats them all the time um so yeah 13 years sober and i'm i'm very fascinated by i want to talk to you about sans bar because as somebody who i was i was a bartender uh for i guess for like tw i don't know 12 years uh, wow. while I was drinking and then for like two or three after I quit. Wow. Um, yeah. And that was a trip. Um, <laughs> I bet. Uh, but I want to know, like, were, did you, did you tend bar prior to this sans bar? And maybe you can talk about the, the incarnation of, and what it is and how it came to be. Yeah. So I think my story sets up, like so far what we've talked about sets up exactly how sans bar became a thing um i stayed sober that first year in houston moved to austin um oh yeah because i met a girl in rehab and i uh, was going to move here to austin which i you know place i'd never visited much to be here with her didn't mm -hmm. work out we're both still sober by the way uh and I didn't have anything else to do with my life. After we broke up, I had moved to Austin. I had no job. I was working at Subway again. Um, and so I went to school and uh, went back to school. And they said, you know, have you thought about becoming a counselor? And immediately the idea just resonated with me. I was like, a counselor, that's, that's beautiful. That's perfect. I've gone through all this stuff. Uh, I'm about 18 months sober at this point yeah let me go just go back to school and become a counselor so uh i became a, a substance use counselor and uh it was incredible i loved the job i was really good at the job uh i just i had a knack for it because i think about stories and i think about you know narrative and so much of what uh counseling is is just learning people's stories and so I would always be genuinely fascinated. It's kind of like an interviewer. Like I'm just genuinely fascinated in what your life is, no matter who you are, because it's a story. And so uh, I, I did this job and, and as I was working with clients, I'm now working at uh, kind of the county uh, mental health authority, which is like every county has this, the center that they send people. Right. And so uh, if working in a, you know, private office, you know, with a, you know, nice aesthetics in your office is like, if that is like being a chef, 
what I was doing was like working fast food mental health. Like I was like, you know, 30 clients on my caseload. I'm like, you know, getting people in and out. I'm seeing, you know, hundreds of people a year in my wow. career of eight years. I probably uh, had thousands of clients. Um, so I'm able to see a large volume of people. And as I'm seeing these people cycle in and out of the, the mental health system, um, struggling with substance use, I see an emerging pattern. And the pattern is, is that these people go to rehab and unlike me, they don't have that alumni group. They don't have that support network. And so they go right back to the, the social circle that they were hanging out with before they went to rehab. And I'm seeing this happen now, you know, hundreds of times a month. And it's just like, how is this okay? How is this industry okay with failure? You know, it's like, it'd be like having a, you know, a, a, a car factory, you know, owning a Tesla factory and, you know, 90% of the Teslas, hold on, something fell. Okay. Please edit that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's like owning a Tesla factory and 90% of the Teslas explode as soon as they drive off the lot. Mm -hmm. You would not be comfortable with that percentage of failure. No. But in the rehab industry, we're, they seem to be very okay with that kind of success rate. And uh, I was like, this is not right. This is not okay. What can we do? What can we do to make sure that treatment outcomes um, are, are so much more than what we're giving people now? What can we do um, beyond the clinical setting to provide a place for people to make those connections. And that is where Sansbar was born. Aftercare. Aftercare. Okay. Aftercare, but like really cool aftercare. Yeah. <laughs> because you're not going to go to a place if the nachos are trash. Um, <laughs> you know, you're just not going to do it. So as you can see, so much of that is me. It is my story, right? Like, I don't know if, uh, if I would have had a feeling of connection and feeling a part of things if I would have thought of Sandspar as a counselor. Mm -hmm. But it was because I had this, you know, 20 year history with this feeling not a part of and isolation that this idea just appealed to me. And, and I didn't create the sober bar idea. This has been going on in Europe for, you know, 10 plus years before I, you know, opened Sandspar. But I knew that it would work here if we made the focus, if Sandspar made the focus on connection. Not so much the drinks. The drinks are great and the drinks are amazing. Um, and we can talk about a little bit of that. But really, this had to be a connection-centric space. And, and so, and so Sandsbar is uh, specifically, you, you go to spaces that are, that are already existing. I mean, at least at least you did prior to everything that's going on in the world, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, when I got started with Sandspar, it did start off as a pop up. Okay. We were popping up around town here in Austin in whatever space we could. Uh, in May of 2018, we moved into our brick and mortar location, and we've been okay. there ever since. Okay. So we have a brick and mortar location. Got it. Got it. In Austin. And then was there a time you were traveling around the country, right? Yeah. I saw yeah. stuff online of being in Seattle 
and a couple other places too. Yeah, so I have no business experience and no barging experience. So for me to own a bar made no sense, mm -hmm. but uh, I had this idea of just community. And uh, as I started to kind of get a little bit of notoriety and you know, I got a write up in USA Today, New York Times, NPR came down to, you know, cover our, our bar. Mm -hmm. And I, I started getting all these requests from people across the country. Oh, I wish this was, this was in my city. Oh, I wish um, I live closer to Austin. This sounds awesome. And I said, okay, well, why don't we just bring the bar to them? So in 2019, uh, I embarked on the very first Sands Bar Where You Are tour. And to my knowledge, I could be wrong, but this is the very first time in U.S. history that a, that a sober bar has made this kind of journey. Mm -hmm. um, a bar, bars usually can't tour because of liquor laws, but this bar can. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we did nine cities in the U.S. and did a pop-up in Toronto in 2019. And then this year, we were slated to go to 15 cities and return back to Canada. And uh, COVID hit. Right. Yeah. Um, I love, so, and I, I, that's, some, that's horribly unfortunate. I mean, and, and, you know, it's, it's, it's ruined a lot of things for a lot of people. And I mean, um, but I just, I love this idea because I think about my pers uh, perspective as a bartender when I was drinking and when I was sober. And I remember when I was drinking and if somebody came in and they wanted something non-alcoholic, I was very dismissive. Um, I was very judgmental. Um, I saw them as like, why are you wasting my space if you're not going to spend money on real booze? Mm -hmm. You don't want a real mm -hmm. drink. And then when I quit drinking, the thing that I noticed was, oh, these people are well behaved. They're here, you know, they're here to still have a good time. There's absolutely, and why I need more well behaved people in the bar because it's usually filled with people who are just ill behaved. And I mean, I saw so much madness and drama and sloppiness. And it would be such a relief for somebody to be like, can I just get a club soda or can you make me, you know, can you make me something fun, but I'm not drinking tonight? And I would jump at the chance. I'd be like, sure. Yeah, I've actually got a couple of things I can make for you. And so I love this idea of being able to have a space to go and socialize like like we do like like we do you know in sober spaces which don't have to be relegated to um you know church basements or you know, the <laughs> end of community centers or whatever it is and so like this this cool spot where you can go and talk to people and it doesn't have to be I'm sure, and I don't know. I mean, the conversation is not all just about being sober. It's just a place where I don't have to deal with other drunk people. Yes. <laughs> you know what I uh, mean? Yeah. I mean, and, and I think we've done a really good job at creating a culture at Sands Bar that is sober, but it's not recovery. Uh, right. The space is sober. The space is sober. In fact, so we occupy this corner lot. So mm -hmm. uh, there's a row of bars and there's a bar, a couple of bars across the street, but we're on this corner lot. It's and it's a beautiful spot. It's an old building uh, in East Austin. And on a busy Friday night, again, if COVID wasn't a thing, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, that, yeah, that little 
alley is just packed full of people trafficking in and out of the bars, right? Bar hopping. And of course, since we're the first bar on the block, people will come in. And it's amazing that almost everyone that comes in, they stop immediately because they can just feel that something's different. Mm -hmm. I've had people who are drunk, 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 drunk. And they are not all there, but as soon as they cross that threshold, they just pause and they look around. And they'll, you know, what is this? <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we talk to people, we, we explain what it is. Um, because some people do just seek us, you know, they, they, some people seek us out, but some people don't. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't, at how many people uh, just stop in and they're like, this is kind of a cool space. Like they've got some live music over there. There's some games going on over there. There's this beautiful patio outside let's just sit here for the night. And I've had people come in for one drink and close the bar down at two o'clock in the morning. They just love the fact that they can come here. Um, and I've really designed the, the atmosphere to be conducive for connection. So our music is at a nice volume so that you can still hold the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, we make sure that the lighting is just so that you you don't feel like the spotlights on you like the overhead lights are on it's not last call lights but it's still bright enough for you to make out someone's face right like all of these things are things that we do so that you feel comfortable in in, in engaging and connecting with who's ever at the bar that night mm -hmm. yeah and i i think it's great i you're just, you know, you're, you're describing it. And one of the things I'm so used to, you know, especially on bar crawls is stumbling into a place and, and the smell of, you know, a thousand stale beers in the floorboards or whatever, and being able to have like a fresh, clean space. Um, there's a place here uh, where I live and I know, I know both the owners and it's, it's a regular cocktail bar and they do live music, but they took over what was an absolute dump. And they cleaned it up and my girlfriend performed there one night and um, she, and she doesn't really like going in the bar. I mean, she doesn't drink. I don't drink. And um, obviously that's why we're here, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but she, she performed one night and she walked in and she's like, this is so beautiful and this is so clean and it feels so cared for, you know? And I think that's a big difference in listening to you describe it versus a lot of the other bars I've been to is that, lighting is important and music is important and the ambiance is important, you know, and that's what creates a comfortable environment for people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because if, I, if I'm creeped out and it's weird and dark, well, yeah, I guess I kind of want to get drunk so I don't have to remember that I'm here. Right. <laughs> you know, right. How, many, how many bars have I been in where I'm like, oh, this place is a shithole. We should probably get drunk. You know? Right. right. So, I mean, and, and that's and I think that's the challenge with owning a sober bar. If it's a hole in the wall, it really does not matter because the alcohol is going to change your understanding and perception of the space. Yeah. So much so that you don't even care. You don't yeah. care that it's a dump. You don't care. In, in fact, those are some of my favorite bars when I was drinking mm -hmm. were the hole in the walls, right? Um, <laughs> But when you're sober, you notice your environment so much more. And so it's 
you know, doubly incumbent upon us to create the right atmosphere, even if it's, uh, whether it be at Sands Bar or on the road when we're, you know, touring across the country. Uh, we make sure that the space feels uh, nice and contemporary uh, and it feels safe and feels yeah. inclusive. Yeah. And I think because we really do make it about feeling safe and if someone is intoxicated and they're causing a problem, they're, they're gone, right? Like there's right. no, there's zero tolerance for that. Um, if you've been drinking and you can be cool about it, I'm cool. Like I, I'm not here to be the sure. arbiter of anyone else's uh, relationship with alcohol. But I bring up that point because I feel like it says something about the way that this bar is set up for connection. Mm-hmm. And it's set up for people who are looking for something that is different than the traditional space. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's awesome, man. Um, I, I got a couple more questions for you. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but um, I, well, actually three. Do you have any good recipes for tonic syrup? Because <laughs> I had, it's funny, I had somebody ask me uh, if you can email me something or if you, I would love to, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've got all kinds of cool drinks. I don't, you know, I don't, you don't need to go down the list, but I'm sure there's all kinds of, you, you get into the syrups and the tinctures and the shrubs and stuff like that. You oh yeah, for sure. Um, so for there's sure. a yeah. lot of mixology. There Minus- is. And then that's, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to poo-poo the drinks. Uh, the drinks um, are a great supporting actor mm-hmm. in our, in our, uh, what we serve. I, I really do. I just don't think it's, it's gotta be the thing. And, and right. that's just kind of where I'm different than maybe right. even some other sober bars who just believe like the drink has to be amazing and it has to be incredible. Right. I agree that I think it does, but I also think that it's never the main reason why people go and spend money at, at any place. I think it really is about changing the way that you feel. Right. Yeah. But the atmosphere is what does that, not the alcohol, right? So in a sober bar. So we have to have a very nice atmosphere to, to change the way that you feel, right? To yeah. make you feel more connected, to make you feel more part of. Um, but yeah, uh, there are so many great products on the market. And that's what I'm a big fan of. I love to, to educate people on what's available because uh, Shirley Temple is just not the only thing that's available. That, that's, right. you know you can do more than club soda and lime. Um, mm-hmm. In 2017, when I started Sands Bar, there were not many options, but now there are so many. In fact, I'm, I'm drinking uh, hop tea and it's just a hop brewed tea. So it tastes very hoppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, so it's got hops and uh, let's see what kind of tea? white tea. And it's great. Um, there's so many, uh, spirits that are not there's there's a company called liars that just rolled out a full um spirits collection there's ritual zero proof which has um a whiskey alternative and Hmm. that is my go-to drink after a busy day uh on zoom and uh you know wrangling the kids i love to sit down with the ritual zero proof whiskey neat um and it's fantastic. And I never drank whiskey as a, uh, or probably I did, but I, I wasn't drinking it for taste uh, no. when I was when I was out there. So there are so many. I mean, there's. I mean, I'm thinking like gin and tonics. You can do with a gin and tonic. Um, you can use either Ritual Zero Proof uh, gin or uh, there's a company called Seedlip, 
and mm -hmm. they have a uh, Garden 108, which is great, with a little bit of tonic, uh, twist of lime, and that's that's a really easy approachable drink. Um, there's just there's so yeah. many different things you can do. Cool. Really cool. Um, okay, so I've got a couple more questions. Um, 13 years sober, is there still anything that you uh, struggle with in, in sobriety? Hmm. I definitely think staying right-sized uh, is, is something that I struggle with. Um, as I'm growing this business and growing this brand, there is a lot of things that scare me. Um, I'm taking these huge steps and doing things that I never thought I would be doing. Um, I have the opportunity to, to just meet people that I could never dream of meeting. I mean, just, it's, it's very easy for me to say I don't belong here, or it's very easy for me to say like, oh, well, I've got this because I've got 13 years of sobriety. Staying right size to me means I am both. I, am, I belong where I belong, and I also need to do, continue to do the work. Yeah. That 13 years means nothing. I've seen people with twice as much time take another drink. And so staying right size is my, my present and I think forever struggle. So the last question I had is, do you have any... Um advice for somebody newly sober about dealing with, you know, the fear of missing out, of going to a bar, of, of having to completely flip over their entire social setting, you know, or any advice at all? I mean, to that specific situation, I would say um, you can do it. I would, I would yeah. encourage people to create their own fun. I feel like uh, it is, and it was helpful for me to also be educated about how big alcohol has made it so that we believe alcohol equals fun. Mm -hmm. um, that we just believe that we need to have alcohol to have fun. And it, it is intentional. It is very real. It's strategic. And they've put a lot of money into creating this, association with fun relaxation uh with usefulness and sophistication uh and alcohol they have a vested interest in us feeling like we are not a part of and so you have to create your own uh fun you have to create your own uh memories and your own magic alcohol is never going to be uh good at doing those things so hmm. you have it within you to do um the other thing that i would recommend is that uh, you connect with people. Connect with me. I I uh, am a person that openly solicits connection. And I Where will, do we find you, Chris? You can find me at Sandsbar, uh, thesandsbar.com or sands underscore bar on Instagram and Facebook, which is the easiest way to reach me is uh, just, sure. just shoot me a message on Instagram. But yeah, that's how you can reach me. But I, I am a person that will connect with you. That is what I do. Uh, and that's what I will always be. Awesome. Well, Chris Marshall, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And um, I hope that 
everything is up and running again and that, you know, when the time comes, if you come to the Bay Area, uh, I would love to stop in and have a drink with you. <laughs> yeah, we were going to be in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. According to my schedule, we were supposed to be in San Francisco. So we will definitely be back to the Bay Area. Uh, thank you so much for this. It was a great conversation. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. All right, Chris, thank you so much. All right. All right bye. Thanks again for listening. Our music, as always, is by Neglect. You can find more of his stuff at neglect.bandcamp.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms that matter, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us at aisforalcoholic at gmail.com. Talk to you later. Yeah. <laughs>